I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Are those lines familiar to you? They comprise the uh, last stanza of Robert Frost's poem, uh, The Road Not Taken. And at least in me, and I suspect in you, they evoke uh, reflections on the choices we make as we go through life. We face lots of choices, from the trivial to the major. Um, the question is, on what basis will we make those choices? What will be our frame of reference? What worldview will inform them? The Apostle Paul wants to help us think about that today. Paul thought he was doing God's will when uh, he headed out on the road to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Damascus after overseeing Stephen's stoning. Sure, he was serving God. He intended to proceed to Damascus and continue ravaging the church by entering house after house and dragging off disciples of Jesus to imprisonment. But as he approached Damascus, Paul had a miraculous encounter with Jesus. By God's grace and God's grace alone, he came to realize that Jesus was God incarnate and that sinners can be reconciled to God and escape damnation to hell only by doing what Jesus said, as reported in Acts 26, which is, turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So you know the story that Paul's eyes were blinded there at that encounter with Jesus. But those were his physical eyes. His spiritual eyes were opened wide. And in fact, this revelation of Christ and his gospel changed Paul's worldview dramatically and informed all the choices he would make for the rest of his life. Appointed by Jesus to be his apostle to the Gentiles, Paul would make three missionary journeys across the Roman world, establishing new churches. And as uh, you'd read in Acts 16, the church at Philippi was the first he founded. And it is the letter to that church that he wrote about 10 years later that we have been studying. At Covenant Life, we preach expositionally because all of God's word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is important, not just for part of the time, but all of the time. As Jesus told Satan in their encounter in the desert, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And by hearing and submitting to God's word, and by trying to make the point, main point of the sermon, the point of the main point of the passage, then we have our minds conformed to God's mind, not the mind of a preacher who has decided ahead of time what he wants to say and then looks in the Bible for support for that view. At our first worship service on October 2nd, we began to preach through the book of Philippians. And Lord willing, we will finish that task on February 19th and then begin to teach through the entirety of an Old Testament book, Amos. And when we finish Amos, we'll come back to the New Testament, hopefully continuing this alternate testament policy until Christ comes again. 
Christina just read today's passage. You may think it's strange that I'll be preaching not just through the end of the third chapter of Philippians, but also the first verse of chapter four. Um, to explain that, we have to remember that the original writings weren't divided into chapters and verses. Uh, it was Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who in 2027 divided the New Testament into chapters. And the New Testament was further uh, divided by Robert Estine, also known as Stephanus, in 1555. The first English Bible to number both chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible, published just a few years later in 1560. So in most Bibles today, other than a reader's Bible, chapters are marked off by bold numbers in large font and verses are numbered with superscripts. We know that all the words of the Bible, the words that God breathed out, are inerrant. But the chapter and verse divisions were not. Uh, today we'll consider the first verse of chapter 4 along with the last five verses of chapter 3 because they're logically linked to Paul's plea. 4.1 is logically linked to Paul's plea to the Philippians in those preceding verses. Um, that's one example of all people erring. Uh, those errors may include not only how to divide the scriptures, but how to understand and apply them to our lives. Uh, to understand that inerrant message that God has for us today, we're going to need his help. So let's go to him now in prayer. Spirit of truth, uh, please open our eyes and make our hearts fertile ground for the words you breathed out through the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Philippians. May we be equipped and encouraged for our pilgrimage through this short, uncertain life so that we can seek to live it all to the glory of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, last week, Ronnie unpacked for us Paul's statements in Philippians 3, 12 through 16. The heart of it is in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward, forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, in, our next, in this passage... Paul makes three pleas to the Christians in Philippi. They can be summarized as walk with good examples. That's in verses 17 and 18. Think of what lies ahead. We'll see in verses 19 to 21. And stand firm in the Lord in verse 41. Walk with good examples. Think of what lies ahead. Stand firm in the Lord. Those three actions will serve as our sermon outline. Paul begins by telling the Philippians who they should model themselves after as they walk through life. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is asking the Christians in Philippi to imitate him and to do so join together. The NIV translate that, translate that first phase as join with others in following my example. Paul doesn't want them flying solo. When we come to faith, God gathers us into local churches where members can care and encourage one another. Any command that God gives us is better accomplished with the help of our friends. Now, you might ask, why should they imitate Paul? Shouldn't they, uh, Paul, well, shouldn't they imitate Jesus? 
After all, in uh, 1 Peter, the apostle tells us, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is certainly our example. Following Jesus is what disciples do. Um, Some of us may be old enough to remember bracelets inscribed with the letter WWJD. Christians were supposed to wear them to remind themselves when facing a decision, to ask themselves, what would Jesus do? Uh, One problem with that strategy is we are not Jesus. Uh, Christians are wiser to ask, what would Jesus have me do? (laughs) Uh, But the second problem is we struggle with sin and fall into sin more often than we'd like to confess. Uh, Paul's confession in Romans 7 is helpful. Uh, at least gives us a perspective. There he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I cannot do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can anyone here relate to that? I certainly confess that I can. Paul is a sinner. But he fights for sanctification, and he wants the Philippian Christians to fight for holiness, too. In Philippians 1.10 and 11, Paul says he prays for them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Mm. That's what we're all called to. Paul testifies to his fight for holiness in the passage Ronnie preached on last week. In uh, verses 12 through 14, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us he's not sinless. He's exhorting the Philippians to fight for holiness by imitating him. That's what he is doing. And because Paul is a fellow sinner with us, his counsel is actually easier to relate to for us. He goes into, how do I go about following Jesus? And we certainly know that he's doing this. In commanding the Philippians to imitate him, Paul is not seeking to displace Jesus as our ultimate example. He says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we're seeing this chain. Jesus there, Paul trying to follow Jesus. Now Paul is calling the Philippians to follow his example. But there's another problem here because following someone closely, good imitation, requires close observation. And Paul's not in Philippi. Paul's in prison in Rome. And that's why Paul adds the phrase at the end of Philippians 3.17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. To To imitate Paul, the Philippians should keep their eyes on other people they can observe up close. Paul knows some of the Philippians are already imitating him faithfully. And so he urges the others 
to look to them as guides for how to imitate Paul. That's how they can grow spiritually. Spiritual growth is not optional for a Christian. When something stops growing, it dies. We should all, like Paul, be pressing towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We learn by example. It's easier to emulate someone who, with whom we're in close contact. That's the principle by which Paul just said what he did to the Philippians. But that's true for us, too. And this modeling, this following, is doable even among our small number here at Covenant Hope. We can scout out in our community groups people we might want to spend some time with, listening to how they pray, how they encourage, how they apply the same sermon we heard on Sunday. Then the idea is that we would approach them and ask, hey, can we get together? Do we have an opportunity uh, to meet? Um, this is discipling. Discipling means helping someone follow Jesus. And we do that by letting people into our lives, even the messy parts, because others can learn not just from our successes, but our failures as well. Uh, as Mark Dever says, ultimately, discipling involves living out the whole Christian life before others. So how true of that is you? How much of a barrier do you have around you versus how much transparency regarding other people in the church? Where do you fall short and why? And discipling shouldn't stop when you learn to follow Jesus better. Every Christian is a disciple of Christ. That's the definition. And disciples of Christ disciple others. We see this in 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. Christians are to train other Christians who will then train other Christians. In the next verse, Philippians 3.18, Paul turns to think of others in the Philippian church community whose lives he can only contemplate with pain and grief. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He warns the Philippians and us that we must choose our examples wisely. He doesn't want the, Christ, the uh, Christians in Philippi to model themselves after people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, if asked, we'd all uh, readily confess that the cross is at the very center of Christianity. Uh, but you may have given less thought to the fact that it's central in two ways. The first, the way we think of most, the way we've prayed about this morning, is that the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross is how every Christian's sins have been atoned to. How we then, when we then come to faith and are forgiven and accepted by God, we thus escape God's wrath and we have eternal life. But Christ says in Mark 8.34 and similarly in Luke 9.23, if anyone could come, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
And if we look back just a few verses in Philippians 3 to verse 10, we find Paul seeking to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming life like him in his death. So Christians want to suffer as well because Paul is concerned here with what models the Philippian Christians will emulate. It's clear that it was this second way that, peop- that these people of whom Paul writes were enemies of the cross of Christ. They were modeling unchristian behavior, serving themselves, not suffering for others. Now, Paul's not explicit about who these people were, but we can figure it out. They're likely not profligate sinners, self-confessed unbelievers, because such people wouldn't be attractive models for the Philippian Christians. They'd be unlikely to lead them, be attractive and lead them astray. And Paul would be unlikely to weep over them. They are not the brothers Paul referred to in Philippians 1, verses 15 to 18, who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, making, thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Paul says he rejoices about them as long as whether in pretense or in truth Christ is proclaimed. They're likely the Judaizers, the Jesus plus people Paul warns about in Philippians 3, 2. There we read, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Such men deny the power of the cross, insisting that what Jesus did was inadequate to save. They teach that people must become Jews first, observing Jewish special days and feasts, and the males getting circumcised. Paul first, in that earlier verse, expressed concern about what the Judaizers taught. Now he's concerned about how they live. They are not an example to follow. Uh, The conclusion that these these bad models Paul speaking of are Judaizers aligns with what Paul says about them in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, we must note that Paul denounces these men with tears in his eyes. He weeps for those whom he is warning the Philippians about. There's a lesson here for us. We should never denounce false professors without weeping. But we should also not weep about false professors without warning them and their hearers. Do you do both? You lean towards one or the other. I confess to being more prone to denouncing than to weeping. But if we're looking around and denouncing unfaithful churches, we should be weeping for them, for they are on their way to perdition. So to summarize these first two verses, we've seen Paul urge the Philippians and us to walk with good examples faithful Christians who are seeking to imitate Paul as he seeks to imitate Jesus are one of those good examples. So this is another reason to pause for a moment and just think, how would you assess your relationships on this point? Are you spending more time with people who encourage you in your discipleship or with those who would draw you away from the things of God.
I pray we would each make a course correction as needed. Now let's go on to consider the second point, think of what lies ahead. Paul begins by warning about what lies ahead for the Judaizers. He says in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. People who profess to be Christian but actually mislead will, when God judges them, face destruction. The word destruction means ruin. It does not mean annihilation. No one ceases to exist when they're judged by God. They'll continue to exist. The only question is whether it's going to be in heaven or in hell. Christ's words in Matthew 10, 28 make that clear. And do not fear those who, will ki who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, him, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Destroy means going to hell where they will suffer eternally. That eternal dimension is shown by lots of passages in Scripture, but an example is in Matthew 13. Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't just, they just don't wish, weep and gnash, they keep doing it. It is painful thing. But that's why our statement of faith says in its article on the last things that the unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting conscious punishment. Paul goes on to say that their God is their belly. Uh, D.A. Carson observes here, far from being drawn to suffering for Christ's sakes, they are endlessly drawn to creature comforts. They're not living pagan lives, they're actually quite religious but are ultimately characterized by worldly concerns, concerns of the flesh. Paul's warning is not against particular sins, but against the underlying sin of self-indulgence. Paul then says their glory is in their shame, indicating that they exalt things of which they ought to be ashamed. Um, Isaiah 5.20 warns, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And Paul finishes that sentence by saying that they have minds set, mind set on earthly things. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, observed that those who are not regenerated by the Spirit of God think of nothing but the world. They're not seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first as Christ commands in Matthew 6. And so they deserve the same rebuke that Jesus gave Peter in Mark 8.33. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Where's your mindset? Is it set on the things of God? I pray that's the case. We're all... Tempted by creature comforts. We all enjoy creature comforts. The question is not that all creature comforts are bad. The question is, what do we seek first? Where do we look? Do we look up to God or do we look down to our belly? In contrast, Philippians 3.20 helps us think about what lies ahead for Christians. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we Turn 
to Jesus as Lord, we are adopted by God. John 1, verses 12 and 13 tell us, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our citizenship is in heaven because we are members of God's family. And that is where our Father is, in heaven. We enjoy the benefits from being a Christian while still here in the world. Uh, certainly being cared for and encouraged by this local church are among his benefits to us. It's a local outpost of God's kingdom. But we should value more the gift of heavenly citizenship and the life with God that is to come. While still on earth, Christians eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come down from heaven. The Bible calls that event the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the culmination of history. 2 Peter 3.10 describes it this way, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the day of the Lord is going to strike terror in unbelievers for they're going to face judgment, for their works are going to be exposed. And then the new heaven and the new earth promised in Revelation 21 will be established by God and the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven. Heaven is only an intermediate destination for us. That's where every Christian soul will go if they die before the day of the Lord. But our ultimate hope is not that we'll go up to heaven, but that at Jesus' second coming, God will bring about the new heaven and new earth promised in Revelation 21. And there we will dwell with God in the new Jerusalem. So yes, we're going to heaven version one, but we're looking to go to the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to establish. As Christians, we can look forward to receiving the inheritance spoken of in 1 Peter 5.4. We can look forward to God wiping away every tear from our eyes. We can look forward to death and mourning and crying and pain being no more. And most of all, we can look forward to being in God's presence. Whereas David declares in Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures of evermore. So genuine Christians should be living with a view to Jesus' return and eternal life in God's presence. They cry out the words of Revelation 22:20, 20, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you pray that? Are you homesick for heaven? We should be heaven-minded. And you've probably heard the adage, you know, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. <laughs> uh, but the truth is, we live best in this world when we keep our eyes on the next. Yet another amazing thing happens on the day of the Lord. The bodies of both the righteous and the wicked will be raised and reunited with their souls. The wicked will face final judgment and suffer God's wrath. 
Uh, there's a rich set of scriptures on that. You might look this afternoon at John 5.29 and Acts 24.15 and Matthew 25. In the case of Christians, on the day of the Lord, Christ will bring about a miraculous change to their bodies. We see that in verse 21. Who will, speaking of Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself? Now, this is exciting stuff. Uh, But we're deep into mystery territory here. For God has only revealed a few things about this transformation. We can know a few things. We can remember that God created man with a body and a soul, and Christ redeems the whole man. The application of Christ's work of redemption will not be complete until our bodies are set free from the effects of the fall, until we're brought to the state of perfection for which God created us. We see that in Romans 8.23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not just our souls, our bodies. These bodies will be physical. They'll be changed, but not replaced. But how, we don't know. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 38. But some will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And we read in verses 51 to 55 of 1st 15, of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body, excuse me, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Um, Our glorified bodies will be imperishable. And since it's actually the the gradual degradation of our bodies as we grow old, occurs because death entered the world. Uh, Some of us are a little closer to that end point than the others, but it's logical to think that our resurrection bodies will have no sign of aging. Uh, Wayne Grudem concludes they will have the characteristic of youthful but mature manhood and womanhood forever. So... If you ever wondered how old you would be when you received your new body, when you were resurrected, I think that clarifies it. That's sound biblical thinking. Does this excite you, though? 
I mean, it excites me. Uh, there's much to discuss on this subject. <laughs> I, it was, it's a rich subject with much to consider, but we don't have uh, that as our purpose this morning. So let's continue to Paul's third plea, which is found in verse 4, 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul begins with, therefore, uh, because in view of what he's just talked about, our heavenly citizenship and the glorious transformation it will involve, what follows, follows. Paul's deep affection for the Philippians shines through in the addressing his brothers. He uses six terms of endearment in this one verse. They're his brothers. He loves them. He longs for them. They are his joy. They are his crown. They are beloved. He's not in any way a detached teacher. Paul shares God's precious truth with the Philippians and loves them deeply. To explore just one of those affectionate terms, my crown, Paul calls on that because scripture passages such as 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15 and 2 Corinthians 5, 10 teach that all believers will be judged for their work. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, Paul says this about others he's led to faith. For what is our hope and joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? In 1 Peter 5, the apostle gives instructions to elders about their duties, including being examples of the flock, as Paul is clearly doing here. Peter concludes by saying in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Thus, Paul properly regards the Philippian Christians as his crown. How many of you led to faith? How many crowns might you receive? Let's endeavor to be faithful evangelists and be used of God for that. It doesn't qualify us to get there, and we will eventually lay those crowns back at the Lord's feet but it is something to look forward to. May we be following in the footsteps of Paul and seeking to serve God's kingdom as he has. Paul concludes uh, Philippians 4.1 with the exhortation to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 4.1 is actually the conclusion of the main body of Paul's letter. In this verse, Paul hearkens back to his plea for the Philippians to stand firm in Philippians 1.27. We haven't been there that long ago, but let's review what that says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This exhortation is not just for the Philippians, it's for us. We are to persevere in this manner, holding on to Christ and holding on to one another and being held on to by him. We are to press onward. Whatever problems we face in this pilgrimage down here, we must stand firmly in Christ. We must trust all of God's promises. 
for they encourage us. Well, among those is John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We can stand firm in Christ because he holds on to us. What a future is ours. It's only because God has had compassion on us and given us the gift of faith. We should conclude. Uh, Paul has called us to walk with good Christian examples. He's made clear to us that God's wrath will be poured out upon false confessors and open our eyes to the glorious future that awaits us as Christians. He's challenged us to stand firmly anchored to Christ no matter the trials we've faced, and he's equipped us to do so. It's my hope that your soul, like mine, has been blessed as we considered this passage this morning. Let's close in prayer. We praise and thank you, Lord God, for the wonderful counsel you've given us in this passage from your servant Paul's letter to the Philippians. You've helped us to appreciate the importance of identifying and following good examples as we navigate our earthly journey. We thank you for having blessed this church with many. Father, as we think about the choices that lie before us, your son's word in Matthew 7 come to mind. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Almighty God, we pray that you will help us stand firmly in Christ and choose wisely at each fork in the road we face. Help each of us to walk the way that leads to life. Ages and ages hence, may we, solely by your grace, joyfully say, and I, I took the road less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. We ask all this for our good and your glory. Amen.